Father in heaven, we look to your word. Protect us from the arrogance of trusting our works that we may enter into your rest. Protect us from our rest that we may do your works, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow. You were praying on topic this morning. <laughs> right? That was amazing. Wow. All right. I have a couple of, of things I'd like to mention. Uh, we have now a commitment from Marilyn McCord Adams to visit Loma Linda uh, on uh, the Sabbath, the weekend of April 28. Uh, if you have any view on whether we should do a Friday night and Sabbath uh, you know, combination, and I would like you to uh, to uh, advise me on that. But she will give three talks, and uh, so it would be a bit much, maybe, for if she does it all on Sabbath. But she, so we could do Friday night and two on the Sabbath. Marilyn McCord Adams, as I mentioned before, she has. Uh, uh, let me just say a couple of things about her. She <coughs> used to teach philosophy at UCLA, and she was chair of philosophy at UCLA. And she's married to Robert Adams, who is one of the leading philosophers, leading uh, experts on Plato in, in, uh, in contemporary uh, American uh, <laughs> academic circles, you might say. And then the two of them, both of them are Episcopalians. They started ministering to AIDS patients in, uh, in connection with their church in, in uh, L.A. in the late 80s when, when AIDS was on the rise. And this led Marilyn <coughs> to want to go back to school. Uh, so she went to Princeton and did an MDiv degree in theology at Princeton, or, you know, prepared for the ministry. And after that, she became professor at Yale University and, stayed, and spent uh, 10 years at Yale teaching. She was also chair of historical theology at Yale. And then she was asked, or then after that, she went in 2004 to Oxford University and became Regius Professor at Oxford, which is the oldest uh, professor, professorial position in the Anglo-American world. Uh, uh, it is a divinity pro uh, uh, professorship. And then she re at 65, you have to leave uh, those kinds of positions in the in the British uh, system. So she is now a distinguished research professor at uh, at UC uh, uh, at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. When I wrote to her, she said yes immediately. And uh, she has one of her students. My oldest daughter has been her student, and and so I had a little bit of an inside track, uh, <coughs> which I think helped. Uh, and uh, I just think it would be interesting to, to hear her here uh, uh, speaking on the subject of her two books, uh, Horrendous Evil, Horrendous Evils and the Goodness of God, and Christ and Horrors. Those are the two books that I have asked her to, to, to talk to. So I just think that could be, uh, she is not, as I mentioned before, a cosmic conflict perspective. She doesn't have that, but the way she observes reality, the way she takes the measure of reality is in some ways a measure that, that for me, supports and fits very well into the paradigm that, that is my, my paradigm. So, so of all the of, of people we might want to listen to, I think she, she would be one. And, and, and <laughs> I'm hoping I'd like once to do, see if I can do a Skype with my daughter and have her recommend it because she, she's very 
uh, very fond of, of her former former teacher there. So <clears throat> that's one thing. So that was uh, that was the ad. And then here is another thing. You know, when I I started doing this class uh, uh, almost uh, it's about three years ago now, and we started, I was I, I was asked by <coughs> Nanette Wuchinich and Danielle Wuchinich. To to do a series on the Book of Revelation, which which we did, we spent uh, two years with some interruptions on the Book of Revelation, and then we started on this Sabbath perspective after after that. But I have to tell you that I need to do a break, so I'll just do one more Sabbath now. Then we'll have to do a timeout. Uh, I am enjoying this very much, and it is in some ways the most meaningful thing I do here. But I need to uh, to uh, do some more writing. I need to to uh, prioritize some things. And once in a while, uh, once in a while, the angel of inspiration comes on a visit. It is very rare. Uh, it happens very seldom. But but the angel came the other day, <laughs> and I was preoccupied with other <coughs> with my other things, so I couldn't take full advantage of the visit. I hope. I hope the angel will come back, come back in the near future, because I have a project that I want to want to uh, to uh, complete uh, in writing, and so I hope you will. Uh, I I owe a lot to you for for coming for these uh, these uh, Sabbath sessions, uh, and uh, but we'll. I just have to to do a break and 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 take some. Uh, make make more time available for for those other things. So maybe we could reconvene again at a point later. I had hoped actually to do a couple of sessions on the Sabbath in the Book of Revelation and round it off with that. But instead, we will round it off next time with st- staying in the Gospel of John and do a and do a kind of assessment. What is the essential theology? of the Sabbath, <clears throat> and how does the essential theology of the Sabbath compare to what you might call the essential theology of Sunday? You know, to just take it down to, to that and, 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 and see what, what happens if we do that. I, I do think that we would define the essential theology of the Sabbath somewhat different than we have as Adventists defined it in the past. So I'm more interested in how we will define it you know, in some ways, in, in to ourselves than to any other sort of outside community. But but we can do both. I mean, it 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 could cut both ways. So let's uh, <clears throat> go back then to uh, the Gospel of John, and we have now uh, added up that the Sabbath in John, the verb here is working, and the Sabbath. The verbs in the Old Testament, in, uh, Exodus, uh, in Genesis and Exodus, uh, emphasize rest. And we are still on these questions, whether there is a, uh, a conflict at the very heart of the Sabbath in, in these two perspectives, rest in the Old Testament, work in the Gospel of John, or whether we could say that the rest of God in the Torah and the work of Jesus in John they signify something other than a contradiction. So it seems, don't you think we ought to feel that it's kind of mandatory, uh, that it is quite important for us to, to figure that one out, to see how those, how that, you know, what, where we end up? So <clears throat> now uh, 
let's see. I I just couldn't resist it. So I want to do a, the the mud thing today. Brent, could I borrow you? I I trust that you did not use makeup today. <laughs> so so what did he actually do? You know, what what yeah, no glasses. You will not need your glasses after this one. <laughs> so so what did Jesus do? It wasn't very, it wasn't very um, uh, static, you know. He was spitting on the ground. And I thought the suggestion we had here the, uh, a couple of Sabbaths ago that, that uh, Jesus in some ways is recapitulating the creation story of God taking dust and forming dust and creating life. So, but I, this is pre-made, you know. I didn't spit, I used water. <laughs> It might not be as effective. I, 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 it, it, you know, but here. So this is, this is good California. This is California mud from my yard. Okay. You know, and and if I if I ruin your shirt, you, yeah, you will. Yeah, I know, but shirts, you know, Macy has a sale every weekend. <laughs> so, okay, so now we tell him, what did Jesus tell him? To go and wash in the pool of Siloam, you know. So that's what he did. You know, this is the pool, <laughs> pool of Siloam. Yeah. <laughs> No, no, now he's, he's never going to need glasses again after this. <laughs> that would be great. This is better than keratotomies. <laughs> Am I getting close here? You're, you're getting close. I can't close. see. <laughs> well, you're a good sport. Now, now, if you sue me after this... Should I go to the pool now? <laughs> if you sue me after this, I have no chance because you had so many witnesses that, that I really did it. <laughs> Anyway, you know, we need, thank you, thank you, Brent. We, we need to do that, or, or we might need to do things like that with stories in the Bible, just to slow us down, to get us into the actual, you know, narrative, and not just, you know, to do actual time rather than just narrative time, you know, because, you know, this is quite conspicuous, you know, what he's doing there. It's slow, you know, it's, and there is... <laughs> and there is skin <laughs> skin contact. I hope no harm was done. <laughs> anyway, so he is now. We are picking up the story at the end of the conversation, where where in John three uh, nine thirty four, they have discussed with him. They have been discussing with Jesus, uh, or he has been discussing with Jesus, and he has been saying what was the last thing he said, the testimony when they when they have the the interrogation and the, well, he said, you know, it is remarkable. You don't know where he, where he was from. And he opened my eyes. If this man was not from God, he could do nothing. You know, that's his, his you know, emphatic testimony. And then they answered him, you were born entirely in sins. And you, and are you trying to teach us? And they drove him out. So, you know, what is that? You know, uh, well, that's an ad hominem attack, isn't it? They attack the person and they, they say that he is not a good person. And it is his viewpoint they don't like. You know, they are not contesting 
They are not contesting what happened anymore. It is his point of view, his confession, that if Jesus is not a good man, he couldn't do that. You know, That was impossible to, to, to uh, carry out such a feat, to restore sight to a man born blind, unless you are a good person. So, uh, 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 Joanne Brandt says in her commentary, uh, in the face of such tight logic, the authorities can respond only with an ad hominem attack. I'm sorry about the handouts today, by the way. It seems like we ran out. I brought the two pages that were missing last time, and I brought a new handout for today, and, and that we, are, uh, we have run out of that. So I will, I will uh, attach it, but if, if uh, anyone has a handout to share, then and somebody could raise their hand. Uh, then, yeah, so fine. Uh, so there is a, I will, I will email, uh, email the handout. I'm sorry about, about the short, shortfall today. Okay. In the face of such tight logic, the authorities can respond only with an ad hominem attack, considered a fallacious argument in modern logic, and as something that only resembles a proof by Aristotle. Ad hominem speech was quite common in the ancient world. And if you could do it well, it was, you know, that was considered a clever thing to do. We do not like those kinds of arguments today. You know, you're supposed to respond to what was said to the, to the merit of the reasoning and not attack the, the person. You know, say, well, you are, you know, you have a view, but you were... You were born in sin. <laughs> so, left with no more arguments, they turn to brute force. So they throw him out, and the, 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 uh, John's words there are, they out threw him out. That's what he's saying. They out threw him out. He's using out twice, you know, just for emphasis. They really, they really send him headlong uh, out the door, as it were. That's how it is. Okay, let's read now. One of you read uh, uh, verses 35 to 38 in John 9. Jesus heard that they had driven him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe and he him. So just like in the healing in chapter 5, uh, there is not yet a co- clear connection between the healer and the healed in terms of who is, who is Jesus from the perspective of the person who has been healed. What other passage in the Gospel of John come to mind when you read these, ta- these verses? Where else have we seen a conversation progressing in, along similar lines? We, not, not the Sabbath stories, but where else? The woman at the well. You know, what does she say? She says, I know that when the Messiah comes, he, was, he will tell us everything. And Jesus says, you know, well, guess we'll have to wait. Guess, you know, sometime in the future. But this is not the story in John. The future has come into the present. You know, so whatever good thing we waited for to happen in the future is really already here in the Gospel of John. The time is coming, the Gospel of John says, the time is coming and it is now. 
the time is coming and it is now. That emphasis is very, very striking. And, and Jesus will say to him, you have seen him. And the one speaking with you is he. You know. Well, how do you do that? You know, how do you make those kinds of connections? How do you come to see that this person who, yes, he has healed you, but, but even so, even if he has healed you, to, to sort of make that kind of investment into the person of Jesus, that he is the one, you know. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the Son of Man is not a, just a, is not, I mean, that's a loaded term. Who, who primed that term for action in the New Testament? Where is the Son of Man terminology probably taken from? It's probably the book of Daniel that is now, so these, just like, just like in, uh, at the beginning in the Gospel of John, in the beginning of the narrative, after the prologue in the Gospel of John, the, there is an, an, an investigation as to the identity, the credentials of John the Baptist. Remember the beginning in chapter 1 in the Gospel of John? So they come out to John the Baptist from Jerusalem and they ask him, who are you? And then they say, are you, are you Elijah? Because why do they ask about that? Because the prophet Malachi said, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So they ask, they, they are not asking just open-ended questions. They are asking quest, a question from a selection of known or potential candidates. There is a short list of candidates for who he might be. Are you Elijah? Are you the are you the prophet? Why do they ask that? Because Moses said in, in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that God will raise up for you a prophet like me and you shall listen to him. He will tell you everything and you shall listen to him. So when they ask, who are you? Are you Elijah? It's Malachi. Are you the prophet? It's Deuteronomy. And now Jesus is what here? And John the Baptist, by the way, says, no, I'm not John Elijah. I'm not the prophet. I am. Are you the Messiah? No. I, and he said that there is a very emphatic negation there on that point. He, test, he said it himself because some people at the time of John the Baptist thought that John the Baptist was the Messiah. Why else the necessity to negate it, you know, to deny it? So... There is a list of candidates here, and here is another of those terms that have been that has a, an antecedent in the in the Old Testament, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. Do you believe in the Son of Man? You know, so there, this is the Danielic. Most likely, this is the Danielic Son of Man, Daniel seven, which you know, which is a uh, which is a passage that that wields a huge influence in the New Testament. And then, and then the conversation, the rest of it there, uh, where he confesses uh, belief in, in Jesus as not only his healer, not only as his healer, but as, as the Son of Man, you know, as that other figure. So there is, there is that existential reality, what has happened between them, you know, there and the healing. And then there is the magnifying, the putting Jesus into, into the context of, of the Old Testament. Are we, are, we, 
Are we on the same page here? See that? What is happening? Anyway, so there is that acknowledgement. Then uh, let's read 39, 9.39. Jesus speaking here. Who will read that? I am coming to this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see and those who do see may become blind. Well, here is a huge paradox in the Gospel of John. As you can see, because many times in the Gospel of John, and many more times than the text I have included here, we have a statements like this. God did not send his, the Son into the world to judge the world. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. But the Son doesn't judge either, because God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. And Jesus says in 8.15, I judge no one. And in chapter 12, there is an even more emphatic, it's kind of summarizing it again, sort of retrospective, on Jesus saying, the Father did not send me into the world to judge the world. I judge no one, you know. And then suddenly he changes the tune and said, I came into this world for judgment. So how can somebody who did not come into the world to judge come into the world for judgment? I mean, that's... That is pretty strange, isn't it? So I'd like you to comment on that. <laughs> Any com Yes, Melissa. It is the implication that he is not the one who is judging? Yeah. Well, yes. Well, it's the implication that he is not the one who is judging. Okay, let's hear a couple more suggestions here. You had asked the question a little bit earlier about the man, how did he come except Jesus as the Son of Man? And I think that's related to the question you've just asked. Because through the chapter 9, we have a series of incidents. And the man first says, his name is called Jesus. doesn't even know his name. And as he repeats the story, his affirmation becomes stronger and stronger. He's a prophet. And finally, he's confronting the Pharisees. And in this repeated retelling of the story, the healed man comes to see this is son of man and those who reject it are judged by their own rejection. Okay, so, so yes, let's have one more comment here so that we can try to put this together. It just seems in a way that it kind of circles back to the opening question with the disciples and why was this man born blind and Jesus said um, he was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And um, I, I see connection there between the two where Jesus is kind of answering them by saying, they're asking, why was he born blind? And he's saying, um, this is why I'm here. And now he's come back and saying, this is why I'm here again. And it's about to be revealed in, in this transaction with the man. Okay. Yeah, Let, let's, let's just try out to, you know, to, uh, the terminology here. So, the notion of judgment. It could be a 
and usually is when we think about it in, in, in a contemporary sort of uh, society. We think about it in judicial terms, don't we? That there is a court and there is a, you know, there is a judge, there is, you know, there is counsel for defense and, and counsel. So it is a judicial event. But is that what it is in the Gospel of John? Is the accent on, on, on a judicial event? What is the accent on in the Gospel of John? And in the book of Revelation, if we may say so. Which I think is a mis- you know, we tend to, to, to go the other route in the Adventist uh, community on that one. So what could it be if it isn't judicial? Well, it could be revelatory. It could be an accent on, you know, ju- judgment can be. So Jesus comes into the world for revelation. So that those who see may see and those who see may become blind. But revelation is judgment. That is a very, we, we could have developed that more. And let me develop it just a little bit more. If you, one of you could find the text, actual text reference and I will give you the content of the verse. Jesus says in chapter 15 maybe, or so thereabouts, he says that if I had not come into the world, and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. Find that verse, one of you, find that verse. If I had not come into the world and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. Which is the verse? So, uh, here is Jesus coming into the world. And so let's, let's find the verse first, everybody. Where is that verse? I mean, doesn't some of you have a have an iPod or an iPad or some other thing that you can? Which one? Fifteen twenty-two. Would you read it for us? Can we get? If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Yes. So, so Jesus is coming, and He is the revealer. Let's say that. And sin begins when. When does this, according to this text in, in John 15, the sin reality that Jesus creates or addresses or, or, or is, is part of, the sin reality, does it begin here? This is pre and this is post. Does it begin in the pre-Jesus era or does it begin in the post-Jesus era? Isn't Jesus coming into the world because there is sin in the world? And he comes to, to solve the sin problem. That is only a half-truth at best, at best when you read the Gospel of John. Jesus comes into the world. And when is there sin in the world? Post-revelation. Post-revelation. This is, they would not have sin if I had not come and spoken to them. So that is in that you know, supports the notion that in the Gospel of John, revelation is what? I mean, revelation is judgment in the Gospel of John. The revelation is itself creating the conditions for judgment. I don't... uh, uh, So, let me say it again. Now, Jesus comes into the world because there is sin in the world. Not in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is quite uninterested in the sin problem defined as that in in those ways. We are great sinners. Jesus comes into the world. He solves our sin problem. Not so in the Gospel of John. 
there are all kinds of problems in the world. But the problem that John calls sin is a post-revelation phenomenon. If I had not come and had not spoken to them, they would not have sinned. And you, you can see many other passages in the Gospel of John that actually supports that perspective. Even the one where John the Baptist says, even the one where John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He uses a singular, hamartia, just not sins of the world, the sin of the world. Even that passage could be made to fit into that notion of sin. This is really, really strange, isn't it? It's different. Light has, sh- has come into the world and human beings love light, light or darkness rather than light. That, you know, to, to, to get familiar with that melody in the, in, the, in the Gospel of John takes some doing because the default position, our default position when it comes to defining sin is not that kind of view. So again, you know, what is the, the only sin that counts in the Gospel of John or the only thing that counts for sin in the Gospel of John is how did you respond to the revealer? What, you know, it was, it's irrelevant what happened before. It is on, it's all focused on the revealer and the response to the revealer. If I had not come and had not spoken, they would not have sinned. Brad first and then. There may be some similarities with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. You know, we're in three, one, two verses we have. God hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. His heart was hard. And, you know, in a sense it was the revelation that came to Pharaoh, evidence that he had to make a decision at that point. I mean, in a sense God did it because he brought the revelation. Yeah. So but what? then Pharaoh had to decide. Yeah. So what, what does that mean? It means that there are more than one story in the Bible that puts the accent the, jud- the judgment is defined more in terms of, of a, a revealing reality than in a judicial, judicial sort of sentencing reality. Would you, uh, let's have uh, more passes. In verse 22, uh, Jesus focuses on what he said, but in verse 24, he continues, he said, if I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now, they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and the Father. So, but that, that does just drive, drive the stakes even deeper into the ground on, on, on confirming the revelatory aspect and, and sin defined in relation to the coming of the revealer. Now, let, let me say a nice thing here about Rudolf Bultmann. <laughs> Bultmann is often considered the worst of the liberal theologians of the 20th century and, and has a very, held in very low esteem among conservatives. And there are reasons for that because Bultmann is a, in, in so many ways an anti-supernaturalist. But he's a keen reader of the Gospel of John and he understands better than most, he understood better than most this thing that we just explained here about, about the connection or what is, what is taught, what is seen as sin in the Gospel of John. So I think he, he needs to be credited for, for seeing that and in some ways uh, re, re, refocusing that subject somewhat. Anyway, let's uh, uh, go to the next, uh, the last, uh, last exchange here between Jesus and the Pharisees now in the Gospel of of, of John, and uh, let's read uh, verses 40 and 41. 
Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would you would not have sinned. But now that you say, We see, your sin remains. Well, is that that is very consistent with what we have seen already. Now first, why would they need to do that? Some of the Pharisees near him heard this. They heard what? For judgment did I come into the world, that those who do not see may become seeing, and those who see may become blind. That's what Jesus is saying. Some of them heard that, and they said, what? Surely we are not blind, are we? Well, why would they want to do that to themselves? Or to, I mean, why would you want to do that? I mean, what, what, how do you hear that? Is, is that self-incrimination, you know? Or is it self-justification? Is that, are they saying it as in a, you know, for self-justifying reasons or for self, they couldn't help it. They had to, they had to do it. Yes. Or for some other reason. <laughs> My perception is, is, is they're challenging him. There's, it's, they're like street fighters. It's like, you're not telling me I'm blind, right? They're challenging him, saying, yeah, you are blind. But then he turns it right on its head and, and challenges their superstitions by saying, if you were blind, then you would have no sin. And he's just back in their face. These are, these are not more than like street thugs or saying, you're dissing me. Well, it is very, isn't it very fascinating? Isn't it, you know, this chapter is an extremely interesting chapter. It, it really, it really needs, uh, you know, it, one needs to, to sort of sit and, and, and you know, I'm sorry, may, if I may say so, enjoy it in some ways, because it is, it is also, you know, a serious chapter, but a very enjoyable chapter. I mean, now, in their interrogation of the blind man, did the Pharisees win or lose that discussion? Well, they really lost it, didn't they? You know, he is teaching them, and he has the better argument, you know, and the only thing way they can prevail on him is to take him, you know, and, and, and throw him, uh, out-throw him out, you know. That, that's what they're doing. And then, as though, you know, haven't they gotten enough now? Isn't this enough? Isn't that, you know, I mean, you've been, been really beaten, you know, and then they come, you know, one more, you know, to take one more on the chin. <laughs> because in some ways, isn't that what they're, they're doing here? You know, they come here and they say, surely we are not blind, are we? Did they really think they could win that argument? They really could, that, they, that, that would really, you know, that there would be some sort of remedial, remedial uh, help for them if they said that? Oh, no, you're not blind. And of course, you know, Jesus says, if you were blind, you would not have sinned. But now you say we see sin remains. Is that consistent with John fifteen twenty two? Sin remains, sin remains. Because what? Because, and sin came into being here. The sin that remains now is the sin that came up, that came into being because of their response to the revealer. You know, the sin that was created the sin that wasn't there before, you know, and the other sins are not, you know, count, they, they are not important. Because, let's say, the man who is born blind, Jesus can fix that kind of problem. Let's say that, you know, he, that's not a problem. But this is a problem that Jesus, even Jesus cannot fix, 
Is it? Yes, Harvey. It sounds to me as if they are feeling guilty and they're trying to assuage their own conscience. In other words, they grasp at a deep level what's going on. And, you know, please tell me I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a sinner. But they aren't so, prepared to give up their position to be free. So in some ways we could maybe even say that it is self-incrimination and self-justification both. And, you know, it is not this or that, it is both in the same, in the same, at the same time. And, 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 and you're, yes. Self-justification is generally self-incrimination. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that solves it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> there, there is this book by Andrew Lincoln, who is uh, uh, teaching in the UK, uh, who has written, I think, a quite competent and good book. I wish there are certain things that one could have made more explicit, but, but uh, his book, Truth on Trial, the lawsuit motif in the fourth gospel, where he is seeing that the whole, the whole fourth gospel in some ways is, is, you know, fits within a sort of lawsuit, you know, a courtroom, thing and the chapter 9 of course is is that completely and the encounter between Jesus and Pilate in chapters 18 and 19 what is that that's a trial it's Jesus on trial and it is in some ways truth on trial if you if you want to take it that way uh, i think if he had done you know seen a sort of cosmic conflict emphasis he would have taken it even further further the the lawsuit motif as a cosmic you know, in a cosmic conflict context. But let's just see if you agree with these, these uh, claims I will make here uh, on, on, on what we have seen so far. The identity and the veracity of the man who was born blind have been proved. Now, now I conceded to, to David here uh, that the first time around it wasn't proved beyond reasonable doubt. Are we on... Is it beyond reasonable doubt now? After this, they've done four cycles of hearings. After they checked, yeah. Now it's beyond reasonable doubt. Uh, so that's good. Okay. And the healing is beyond doubt, beyond reasonable doubt. I mean, they, they did four cycles of this, and uh, so you know. Well, you know, what's your what's your level of of you know what level of evidence do you need? Uh, and. Does it seem like the healing was self-evidently a good work? I mean, how does this case proceed? This closing argument of the man born blind, what is it? If this man was not, you know, you've never heard anything like this. From the beginning of the world, nobody has ever seen anyone who, had, who was born blind get their sight. It's an exceptional event. If this man was not from God, he could do nothing. So he argues you know, he argues from the, from, it's an argument from self-evidence, isn't it? Yeah, I think you could say that. And what about the verdict at the end? The verdict is not a verdict according to evidence, is it? You know, when they throw him out, you know, that is very bad. <laughs> that is the contrary to the evidence. So we could say that that is what is happening here, and, and some of these elements are found in Andrew Lincoln's book. Now, a couple of other things here, just uh, on, the, on, on the terms of the narrative. In the course of the trial, the blind become seeing 
and the seeing becomes blind. That's what Jesus said that he had come to do. He had come into the world to make the blind seeing and to make the seeing blind. Does that happen in this story? Well, certainly the blind become seeing. That happens. Do the seeing become blind or those who see themselves seeing? You know, they do become blind. So that seems to be the case. Now, as, as the story progresses, who is the initial defendant in the story? Jesus is also a defendant in the story, but he is not the first defendant. The first defendant in the story is who? The man born blind, isn't he? And then, as the trial progresses, he becomes, he changes from being a defendant to becoming a witness, you know. And then, uh, he's a good man, he says first. <laughs> and he says, what tells the facts of what happened. And then, in this end, he becomes an accuser if... In some ways, doesn't he? He really delivers the, a pretty, pretty devastating blow there at the end. And the accusers, they become defendants. And we saw that when they say, are we blind too? You know, now they are, they are actually casting themselves in the role of someone who has something to defend. Something that they, something, you know, the onus is on them, as it were, in the end. So the accuser have become defendants. And the jury, where is the jury? <laughs> We need a jury. <laughs> so where is the jury here? You are the jury? See, is that, you agree with that? Where is the jury in the story? Well, do you have juries inside the story? You know, there is some, you know, there are people, you know, uh, judging and so on. But the main jury is where? Outside the story, isn't it? We, you, you know, we are the jury. And if you take it into a sort of cosmic conflict framework, where's the jury? All eyes, all eyes, you know, all eyes on Jesus, who is the revealer in this world, you know, revealing this. And, and the jury, you know, the worse, you know, the jury is, the jury in this story will be persuaded as much by the arguments of those who oppose Jesus as by the arguments of those who argue for him. You know, the, in some ways, both sides make it easier for the jury, not just the ones who argue, not just the blind man and his testimony, but the more they sort of rev up or up the ante or however ever you say that, the more they do that, the, his opponents, the more certain the jury gets of, you know, Jesus being being the, 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 in the right here. Yes, please. Uh, don't you think here the issue really is the interpretation of the law? Because what Jesus did was a good deed, you know. But the Jews countered by the law says this, that the way they interpreted the law, that you cannot do anything, even good things on the Sabbath. That's a good transition question. That's, that's an excellent question too to go back to our questions here, could the rest of God and the Torah and the work of Jesus and John signifying something other than a contradiction? You know, what is it? How can we put this together, their interpretation, their hermeneutic, their way of looking at things and, and, and what, what Jesus is doing? So, so let's uh, give a few answers, possible answers to, to uh, this dilemma. One possible answer could be that Jesus abrogates the Sabbath to the point of flaunting it. You know, he has a man carrying a mat on the Sabbath. He has a, you know, he makes, 
he makes mud, you know, and, and, and smears on the man's eyes, and the man says, I made mud, you know, and, and the conversation is about that. Another possible answer could be that Jesus makes the case for less stringent Sabbath observance. You know, let's, you know, keep the Sabbath, but you don't keep it that, that way. Or Jesus takes Sabbath theology and practice in a new direction. Could be that. Or this one, Jesus reveals the meaning of the Sabbath more fully. So <clears throat> let's, uh, let's uh, uh, have some comments here on, on, uh, on these. <laughs> Which is your, your uh, where, where is your, let's, uh, yes. It seems to me that uh, it, uh, Jesus is trying to, and desires greatly, to have a relationship with human beings. And in order to have a relationship, you've got to know each other very well. And we haven't talked about the Lazarus resurrection sign, but in the 11th chapter and the 4th verse, it talks about the fact that he delayed coming because he was going to show the glory of God. And the glory is character. And so, as I look at the two signs that we've considered, the paralytic and the blind man, God is revealing his character. He reveals it in that he shows his love, he shows his healing, the salve, the mud becomes salve, salve becomes salvation, salvation becomes a description of Christ as Savior, and he's the revealer too and many other characteristics that are part of Jesus' character. Now, how does that relate to the Sabbath, except if you go back to Genesis, and God uh, set aside the Sabbath as a special day in which we could communicate, and we, we would be uh, reconciled, and we could discuss and we could learn and we could know God better. Seems like that's a, a thread that goes all through John about knowing, knowing the Father, knowing Jesus, uh, Him knowing us, and so forth. So um, I think that seeing the character of God in the two signs that we've considered takes us back to the Sabbath as being very important even at this time to bring about restoration and relationships uh, with his human family. Thank you. I'd like to you know, comment uh, too, too specific there. You know, when, when the Gospel of John talks a lot about believing in Jesus or believing in the Father, but as often as the Gospel of John speaks about believing, it speaks about knowing. Because knowing and believing, they are very, very closely related in the Gospel of John. They are almost synonymous. So you know and you believe. It's that kind of, kind of informed belief, you might say. Then the other point is, you know, which one of these four points would fit what you said? It seems to me that it would be be more here that the Sabbath re reveals the meaning of 
uh, oh, Jesus reveals the meaning of the Sabbath more fully. Let's look at a couple of statements here. Here is uh, from an article that I think is quite, quite a nice, nice summary of John 5. Uh, since the authorities of this world would ask with reasons of their own, why did he do it? Jesus must explain himself in John 5. Uh, uh, her name is Karen Pidcock Lester, who has written this. Uh, in doing so, he does not abrogate or contradict Sabbath law. This is not a Sabbatarian saying this, by the way. Anyone who looks for justification of a casual observance of the fourth commandment will not find it here. The Sabbath is written into the order of the universe, and Jesus does not challenge or change that order. Her statement is pretty much a consensus statement. There, there are others who have different views, but many, many New Testament scholars would agree with her that the Gospel of John does not abrogate the Sabbath. It just uh, defines it and develops it in a certain direction, and this is a case in point. So that would, that would eliminate... Uh, Option number one, Jesus abrogates the Sabbath. Option number two would also be eliminated. Jesus makes the case for less stringent Sabbath observant. New direction, well, not necessarily. There is, no, there is novelty here, but it is not necessarily a new direction. Uh, let's read this one. And uh, uh, this is uh, the key, the key text on Jesus defining the connection between his work and God and the meaning of the Sabbath. So one of you, please read that. But Jesus answered them, My father is still working, and I also am working. For this reason the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was, he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own father, thereby making himself equal to God. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Okay, I have put as a, head, a headline here, intimacy, imitation, and identity here. So I'd like us to identify the elements in the text that supports a claim of intimacy with God here. Intimacy with God. Where is the intimacy with God here? Yeah, there is my father. My father is still working, and he was calling God his father. So there is an intimacy factor there. And then imitation. The son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. So Jesus is, you know, he's just doing what the father, he's seen the father doing. That's imitation. And then identity, uh, you might just want to do it this way then, because the identity factor that Jesus is, you know, even closer to God is not, he's intimate with God, but there is still, you know, still a sort of line of demarcation. He is imitating God. That means he is doing what God is doing. But, you know, how do they relate to each other? Well, when you get to the question of identity, what Richard Bochum calls divine identity Christology, that Jesus talks about himself uh, applying to himself prerogatives, actions that usually belong to God. That is, you know, where he, he puts himself inside the divine identity, as it were. You know, does all of those things happen here in, in, in that text? So all of those things are there. 
uh, I think I need to skip uh, skip uh, uh, chapter uh, seven twenty two and twenty four because uh, he is here. Jesus is arguing. Uh, let me read it quickly. <clears throat> They're still not finished discussing what Jesus did in chapter in chapter five. And then Jesus is saying, Moses gave you circumcision. It is, of course, not for Moses, but from the patriarchs. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath in order that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because I healed a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying you are breaking the Sabbath because you circumcise a man on the Sabbath? Is he saying that? No, he's not saying that. He's saying it's okay. It's okay. It's within, it's, it's within the bounds of good Sabbath keeping to circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Now, when you circumcise somebody, you mutilate them a bit. You know, it is in some ways a, a, a slight, slight mutilation. So Jesus is comparing an act of mutilation on the Sabbath that is within the, the bounds of proper Sabbath keeping with an act of healing. He made a whole man's body whole, you know, on the Sabbath. And, and so he's basically using their example. He's using them as an example for his own behavior in some ways. He's saying, what you do is that what I do must be even more legitimate since, you know, it must it's so much better, isn't it? As you can see that. I'm skipping this next statement. You have to read it on your own. Uh, I just want to point out that when Jesus in here says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment, you and I should hear an echo from the Old Testament there. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. You know, be a discerning person. Well, that is a, an allusion to Isaiah 11. He shall not judge by what his eyes see and decide by what his ears hear. You see that? When people hear Jesus arguing, for his behavior on the Sabbath. He is making a messianic claim. He is the person who does not judge by appearances. He is the, you know, the, from the root of Jesse there. Anyway, so let me just go through the final slides here. And uh, uh, let's just see. His, uh, Sabbath healings in John and then are deliberate and they are central to the plot. They reveal the meaning of the Sabbath on the level of theology and practice. And the meaning is, well, here are the texts. Genesis, and uh, I would like to, uh, to add yours, relationship. So you could, add, you could add, add a column here for relationship. You could say relationship or presence, commitment, and blessing. Now, do you have a notion of divine presence in the Sabbath in Genesis? Do you have a notion of divine commitment in the Sabbath in Genesis? Do you have the notion of blessing in Genesis? Isaiah 56, presence, God is present. Don't, you know, give up your hope because, you know, soon my salvation will come and my glory will be revealed. My salvation will be revealed. Commitment, blessing. In the Gospel of John, is God walking away? Does the Sabbath signify God walking away from creation or is he coming to it? Is he saying, you can wait, Bernie? You know, what was it? It was elective, you know, and it's urgent, you know. There is a sort of, you know, so is it presence, commitment, blessing? So we really do not find 
we find it we find it manifested in a different way but we don't find you know the ideology of the sabbath has not changed the ideology of the sabbath in all of these passages are 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 intact so my way of putting this together then is that there is no contradiction there is an apparent contradiction between god's rest in genesis and god's work in john but it is only an apparent contradiction because both of them they are all united on the level of the sabbath as a medium of revelation that the sabbath god is revealing himself so the the revealing intent of the sabbath then is in the foreground let me run this through with you uh, finally here jesus says in john 9 what in john 5 he says the father is working and i am working but in john 9 he says what we must work the work you know so he moves from the singular to the plural so uh, how do we do that the i precedes the we god's rest and god's work come first the main person who is highlighted the person to whom attention is drawn in the sabbath is not the sabbath keeper but the giver of the sabbath isn't that the case so that has to be highlighted sabbath mediates revelation we must work means that we are participants in the revealing intent of the sabbath that must must be 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 fair to say and then the sabbath makes god's presence felt in the world must mean that sabbath keeping communities if they are true sabbath keeping communities what do they do they make god's presence felt in the world isn't that the case jesus does what he is doing you know so we're not seeing here a prescription for what to do or what not to do on the sabbath and the level of specifics but we are seeing a, an ideology here and maybe our sabbath ideology in some ways has been deficient on the level of you know maybe on more than one level actually <laughs> anyway we'll have one more session and and try to put put some of these things together on the sabbath and the gospel of john uh if you want to do a little homework you can compare these two texts uh with uh, genesis 22 with john 1930 that will be our topic next time